Hello and welcome to another episode of Screen Wars, our thought leader series, where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the convergent TV space. Hosted by Michael Beach. Today, I'm joined by the entertainment strategy guy. If you read State of the Screens and you're familiar with his or her work, since they are one of the most cited sources we've ever had. Uh, we've communicated for years via email and Twitter. Uh, we share a research assistant, but this is actually the first time uh, you know, we've ever met in real time. Uh, ESG you know, has fantastic insight, and we dig into a lot of that. Uh, one of the things that was most helpful to me was kind of understanding the overall business model of streaming versus linear TV, really how this is going to dictate the future of content, You know, how much money is going to get spent on content, what type of shows are going to get made. Uh, and then we really get into the the business model of streaming and, and kind of in particular, uh, the arrival of the fast service, you know, the free ad supported streaming TV. Uh, so with that, you know, please enjoy my conversation with the entertainment strategy guy. All right, ESG, welcome to Screen Wars. Hey, Michael, uh, glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've obviously been uh, you know, a huge fan of your writing for a long time. You're probably uh, you're the most quoted person uh, in our newsletter over the past seven years. Um, one thing I've always found interesting is the the point of view that you're able to offer from you know, writing an anonymous account. What kind of was your background on thinking about that and, and kind of how's that, that worked out? Yeah. Um, first off, also, I'm a huge fan of your newsletter as well. I love the charts. I'm constantly pulling charts or finding new data sources from it as well. So uh, there's definitely mutual fans on both sides here. Um, <clears throat> so the anonymity thing uh, started out I knew I wanted to write about strategy and entertainment because I there weren't enough people I thought analyzing the entertainment industry and the strategies behind it. And I had just been let go from another streamer. And so odds are I wouldn't be able to make the writing thing work. So I would be back at another entertainment industry. And I felt if I wanted to write the most freely about entertainment as possible, it made sense to be anonymous so that, you know, if like six months later I wasn't getting any traction. I could go back along the way. Um, it did end up working out. The surprising thing is a lot of my customers actually told me, um, and whenever I throw up a poll on this, I say, should I stay anonymous or like reveal who I am? It's 50, 50. So half the people love it. Half the people don't. So I've kept doing it for that reason. Along the way, I've also, I actually worked on a lot of creative projects on the side. Um, some consulting projects with friends, some consulting projects with just other people. And so now that I write so heavily about streaming ratings as well, I actually think the anonymity piece sort of protects some of those projects. So again, I can write freely about what I think is working or not working in the industry. So um, yeah, I, the anonymity thing is probably the number one question I get asked by people why, um, but it's worked so far and been going with it ever since. Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, the, you know, it seemed like you wrote on your own for a while and then kind of moved to the Ankler a few years ago. Um, you know, what's it been like working with you know Richard Rushfield and the team? Richard Rushfield has been great. Actually, the entire team has been fantastic. Um, as soon as I discovered Richard's newsletter, I definitely felt him and I, where we come from different backgrounds, we sort of have the same approach, the same, uh, in some cases, like skeptical about what the studios are saying, sort of like digging beneath the uh, surface. So was happy to join him. Uh, he had told me before before they launched the big ankler redo last year and really expanded the operation they were going in that direction and so i was happy to start writing a column for them 
And for me, it's been the best of both worlds and that I have my newsletter that continues to go out via Substack, but I also get exposure to the Angler's great audience and get to work with Janice Min, who's also just a fantastic editor um, and great sounding board for ideas. And so, yeah. That's amazing. You know, and the, the streaming ratings, I mean, I think that's the thing you're known for. Um, I've always been interested to ask what, I guess, what's the hardest part about putting that together? Uh, you know, it seems like you had the insight earlier than anybody else that the data was available to make consistent analysis here, but you know, what's the hardest part and kind of what, what pieces are still missing? That's a fan. Both those are fantastic questions. Um, the hardest part right now for me, just from a personal standpoint is just still dealing with the, uh, known unknowns, you know, quote uh, Rumsfeld from way back in the day, but I started out um, pulling Nielsen's top 10 list. Um, I'd like to call it the streaming ratings era when it started in 2020. Um, it was like COVID happened and all of a sudden, a lot of the companies that were working on data hopped into the field at the same time. And the incident that I felt had the most generated the most traffic was when Mulan came out on uh, PVOD and everyone wanted to know like, how well did it do? And so I noticed all of a sudden, and I'd been writing about strategy only for a few years, that there were like five different companies, including Nielsen. And then they started publishing their top 10 list. And my rule of thumb is always that content is about half of the entertainment battle. That's what you're trying to win. So I was all of a sudden like, wow, we now have the data. We can actually look at streaming. But that ties that's still only a top 10 list though. And um, for someone who works outside of a major company or even for some of the people who work inside of a company, the big unknown data point is basically all those other data points for all those other competitors. And even the people who do provide that like Nielsen or Samba TV or some of the other ones, they also have other blind spots, which gets to your second point, which is one, um, no one actually knows what happens on the other side of the screen. So is it one person watching? Is it two people? Who in the household is actually watching? And that's where they have the test panels. But the problem with the test panels on the living room is tying that data over to phones, tying it over to mobile devices, laptops, and trying to figure out the who question. It's still the biggest piece that isn't solved and may not be solved for a while. And then as I know you've covered on the podcast before, in the future, there's going to be even more pieces of content coming from user-generated spaces, YouTube, TikTok, and just getting, translating all those and figuring out what works across every single thing. Such a problem that, you know, may never be solved. So. Yeah, I find it interesting because, you know, we start, you know, our core business on the advertising side, obviously we're right. using similar data sets, but how do you feel the on the content side about how they value everything. Um, you feel like the way you put the ratings together that they have a, a view to, to properly value the content or that's still a black hole. Cause we're the advertising side. It's definitely uh, probably not getting properly valued. I don't think we're there yet um, to have it be properly valued, but I think we're on the way there. Um, I don't think my streaming ratings reports alone could like provide the proper value just because we don't have enough data points that are public to provide those data points. I think we're going to get there. Um, I also think once we have multiple sources at every company, I'm actually optimistic that'll provide essentially better double checks. So instead of having 
just Nielsen and a single point of failure. You can have multiple sources to see if they're all roughly telling a similar picture. Um, that said, I am optimistic we can get to what content is valuable uh, simply because we have so much data that at some point it becomes overwhelming when we know what the hits are or we know what the slightly lesser hits are and we know what the pieces below those. Um, I still, as much as things have changed, I, I tend to revert back to the basic principles with entertainment. Um, so it's a hit-driven business. And if something's popular in one metric, it tends to be popular across the board and everything. So, you know, the example I love to use, like Stranger Things, like Stranger Things is probably Netflix's most viewed show in terms of total hours, but probably also with unique customers and its Wikipedia page views are very high. And so is its social media conversation. So all those things tend to be directionally and it has very high completion rate. So I think at some point we're going to be able to get there. Um, you mentioned the advertising because I know that's what you do day in and day out. And I think that has its own different challenges, especially with attribution and figuring out what's on what platform, which those problems are still going there. But I do think we're going to get better at telling what content works and then valuing how much that actually drives value down the value chain. Yeah, and I got uh, you know three kind of specific pieces of content that I've, I've always wanted mm -hmm. to kind of get your background on. The first, you were kind of really early in calling the the Netflix kind of subscriber slowdown, right? Um, can you kind of walk me through how you projected that? Yeah, so that uh, I actually cribbed that from a business school professor who, in our entertainment strategy class. Um, looked at Netflix back in, it was like 20, I don't want to say what year, long time ago. And he actually said like, could we apply the Bass Diffusion Curve to it, which is the inner, the marketing 101 tool that basically says most new technologies have an adoption curve that starts out slow for a few years, picks up speed and then slows down again. Also called an S curve. It looks like an S sort of like with the two ends pulled out. And so, uh, when I was starting to look at Netflix and they started to have some quarters that were slowing down just slightly, I wondered, I was like, could we reapply this curve to Netflix, um, using them sort of as a stand in for all streaming video. And sure enough, the curve actually fit pretty tightly and it, it still had some uncertainty, but it definitely looked that the idea that Netflix would get to 90 or hundred. And I did this just in the U S but the idea that Netflix would get to 90 or 120 million subscribers, which if people remember all the way back to 2018, that was what a lot of people forecast in the US. And so I applied that, I had to do a ton of data searching because Netflix changes their definitions of US subscribers like every three years. So I had to do some estimates, but it ended up working out. And the number to me was right around 65 to 70 million subscribers in the US. Netflix, like I said, later converted to US and Canada subscribers. But if you subtract out the 10% of the subscribers that are roughly from Canada, Netflix is right around, I forget off the top of my head, but something like 66 million subscribers. And so that's how I calculated that number. Um, I don't know that it would work for some of the other streamers because I think the streaming curve has been adopted now, but I'm definitely monitoring those streamers for if I see subscriber slowdowns in the future, that's gonna be sort of my guess for what happens. You know, it's great just because it, I mean, even if you just get Netflix, right, that, that they're obviously the high end of the TAM yep. uh, for the U.S. And and so, you know, I think that just shifted. It was just such a good insight, you know, so early and, and uh, 
you know, I keep going back to that about when you're, you know, the next time we get into this kind of bull market and people start you know, making these lofty projections, I just thought that an insight was incredible. I appreciate that. It's actually, I think, worked for some other, uh, I think whenever you hear buzzy numbers in any field, uh, look up the Bass Diffusion Curve and basically look at it. You can just, in some cases, eyeball it and you'll get the same thing. I would also say, I noticed this with Fortnite. Um, I definitely saw the slow growth and then it took off and I looked at the same thing and said like, so is it headed to keep skyrocketing to a billion users or is it going to like top out and Fortnite would now, while it remained popular and has its user base, it definitely wasn't growing like what, whatever year when it was like Fortnite summer. And then there were people who were like, will there be 500 million, you know, 600 million, a billion active users. And it's like, no, it'll probably slow down because it was so fast on the uptake. So it's a, it's a fun tool to use. And the other one I would relate to with Netflix, which I, I feel like a corner I was on pretty early as well as the, uh, the churn game is just everything with them. And when you're trying to map things to cable, cable was an industry that didn't have churn because if you wanted TV, you had to have cable. And with the streamers, you, you don't have to keep stay subscribed to a streamer. And so that churn issue was really the thing I was trying to quantify because I thought that was going to lower the overall TAM. And again, I think people disagreed. So uh, yeah, thank you for that insight. It's one I, I try to hang my hat on because it, it worked out so well. And you know, making predictions is a tough game. And another one, uh, you know, the algorithm is a lie. Yep. And I want to get your insight because I think your probably intention was around using that, you know, assuming that, you know, uh, Netflix or, you know, Hollywood Studio uses, you know, data science just to pick what content to green light is more than the, um, you know, the kind of uh, the experience. But we also look at it on the, the content delivery to the consumer where mm -hmm. you've got kind of algorithmic delivered TV. Do you feel like you apply it to both or just more one or the other? No, absolutely don't apply it to algorithms at, that surface content with some caveats to that. I do think they definitely get overhyped and I definitely think certain social sites leverage algorithms even more strongly than say certain streaming sites. But for any of your readers who aren't familiar, so the algorithm is a lie is it's sort of de jure for a lot of, uh, you know, critical reviews of streaming shows that if they don't like it, especially for Netflix, they're like, I can't believe the algorithm picked this show. And uh, the TV show Barry actually featured the algorithm said to cancel a show within six hours, right? Which has never happened because the algorithm wouldn't even have enough data um, to really make the predictions in six hours. They would give some trends, but not predictions. So my argument is, is that it is true that the streamers and all the studios have more data than ever at their disposal to help guide the development process, to help see what's working, to help make some calls, things like that. That said, there still isn't enough data to actually pick, say, hey, this script is going to be a hit TV show, right? You know, if we cast this actress, it's going to be a hit TV show. And I've tried to explain before, the main reason from a data perspective is that there's just not enough data points to be able to tell because there's too many variables going into any individual TV project to say this thing's going to be a huge hit or this thing won't flop. And if, you know, studios did have algorithms, they wouldn't make bad shows and nothing would flop, but that's not the situation. So they have more data than ever before. And this includes, you know, Nielsen ratings, box office, social media, internet traffic, all those things. That is one bucket that content still has to be created by people and they deserve all the credit, all the blame for all the content decisions. 
On the other side is the algorithmic delivery of content, especially for social media platforms. <clears throat> Something like YouTube, especially because their number of data points they have, besides millions of users, they have thousands of videos. Those are absolutely powered by algorithms that surface content to people and deliver those things. And they're powered by advanced you know, machine learning algorithms. And those actually work. The one difference I would say between social media, and I always try and point this out with the streamers, um, when you have millions of data points like YouTube or Facebook or Twitter has, to, or TikTok especially, right, to surface videos, the algorithms are even more important. A lot of the streamers, the algorithms are important, but they just don't have nearly as much content to surface. So if they say, hey, this customer likes X type of content, usually, and this is why people complain that there's nothing to watch, there's only 10, 20, 30 maybe examples to actually surface. Plus, most of the streamers have their fingers on parts of the scale of those algorithms, though they don't admit it. For example, putting something at the top of a homepage does a ton to drive traffic to it, which will boost its engagement. So automatically, it's giving it a thumbs up. All those top spots on like Netflix or Disney Plus's top row, those are not designed by the algorithm. Those are designed by the marketing team. And it's usually based off what's recently releasing or other times. So the algorithms I'm streaming, very important, but they're not quite as powerful as some of the algorithms out there in other websites. Uh, and the last one that I had, you know, is my favorite, the American Viewer series he put out. Um, I just actually reread a lot of this recently. Um, I thought you had, you know, I mean, a, a ton of insight. You know, one was about how Hollywood, you know, kind of designs or develops creative for, you know, kind of the coast. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. you know, different than the overall American viewer. Kind of what, um, what kind of key takeaways in that project? Yeah. So I did, I love putting that together. Um, my, actually my, I have a researcher who works with me and he had the idea. Um, we actually cribbed it from Matthew Iglesias who had a series called who is the average, uh, voter. And so I wanted to do sort of the same thing for the average TV watcher with the one difference being like, while a lot of people don't vote, basically everyone watches TV. So it ended up being across the board that, I mean, that being the main takeaway is that everyone watches a lot of TV um, and that TV usage is pretty steady. Um, and so, yeah, that, that one was a long time ago. I, I'll actually say one of the interesting things is the demographics question keeps coming up, especially with ratings. I get emailed that a lot with people asking questions. I don't have the data to dive into it, but it's definitely, you mentioned earlier, one of those areas to dig into. And it's a tough one because you need to have a good enough sample size, but demographics is one. So a couple of the key takeaways that I thought were, I would say here are the ones I thought were most surprising, though I thought the whole thing was pretty good. First one is social media use. Um, it was amazing to me how big Facebook really is. And then YouTube would be the other one. And that question is, are they a video platform? Or are they a social media platform? But Facebook in particular is still far and away the king, even though I think most people like say on the coast would say it was either TikTok or especially Twitter. Most of the chattering classes tend to use Twitter. And so when you focus on the Twitter conversation, if I had to pick one social platform to only focus on for that conversation, it would be uh, Facebook. The other one is the prevalence of living room TVs. I think a lot of times we think that a, a lot of video is being watched on phones, and I think a lot of video is. 
but it still dwarfs the living room TV. And I think people, and I know again, you've written, you've written about, and you do podcast a lot about connected TVs. And so I would argue this is where I would focus a lot of my energy compared to phones, because I think the viewing experience is just different. Living room TV, you sit down, tend to watch it. You might still be on your phone. You might still be doing something else, but it's like a centerpiece where a lot of mobile viewing is either TikTok scrolling or it's watching a video on a web page or which I think YouTube actually benefits from. In some cases, it's just music that's playing through like the YouTube app so you don't have to pay the song. So uh, social media was a big one. Um, that Oh, the last one related to the coast, which um, I think was really fascinating was that uh, I think we still underplay how religious a lot of America is. And I think that type of content hasn't really been served. Um, and every so often you see a movie or a TV show like rise up and do really well at the box office or the ratings. And it's because there are actually more religious people, very diverse, different sets of beliefs. But I definitely think that's something that a lot of people in Hollywood can or in the conversation about Hollywood can tend to forget. You know, another thing, uh, you know, interesting insight you talk about a lot is the, um, you know, the business model around streaming compared to the linear TV side. A lot of this came to a head with uh, the HBO Max kind of discovery merger and, and kind of changes they made. Um, you know, I guess, do you see this evening out over time or, or are just the economics built into streaming? Are they incapable of creating the same economics that you had in linear TV? I think they're incapable of creating the same economics, um, especially if we look at the economics across the whole lifespan um, of, say, like an individual film or a TV show. Um, I think too many of the windows have disappeared on the film side to ever recreate the same upside especially compared to i think what we forget now was like the dvd boom in the early 2000s where you had something there where films if they could just like pay for the marketing budget could make their production budget on dvd sales because people are buying dvds for everything and then everything else was gravy <clears throat> when it comes to tv my biggest concern which i like had mentioned earlier is still the churn piece um when you're able to churn out, it just means that people are going to pick and choose what they're watching at a given time. And right now, I think it's much more likely that Netflix is at the best case for that than Netflix is at, like, say, the worst case that's going to improve over time. I do think more people will cut the cord, but I think as those people cut the cord, I think they're going to use a variety of free options or other streamers. I think we'll see some evolution as like i know uh, zaslav you had mentioned the hbo max he had mentioned can we do like a big bundle with all the streamers at a lower price point i i th see the logic for that i just also see the incredible difficulty of convincing all these different studios to figure out who's worth what as they try and lower prices and say offer a year subscription to people to get those prices lower so I do think the economics are lower and I think that, you know, for an individual TV show, I think the syndication window just won't be what it was. The second window licensing won't be what it was. The TVOD sales won't be there because people will churn in and out. So it's going to be lower. The one bright side, because I do want to try and stay positive, especially like everything going on. I think the global opportunities will continue to be there in ways that they weren't before. I think that's actually what Netflix has really shown is that, you know, all the streamers 
in some cases, all the traditional studios in some cases had say some Latin American channels, or they partnered with like European companies to sell their content. It really is with D to C, you really can't go global with the content with the caveat that you often need to make a lot of local content for all those new places. But I do think if the Hollywood studios can grab more of that global share, there will be some of that, but on individual market perspectives, like again, in America, I just, I don't think we'll see quite what we had, especially with the, say, maybe the revenues will equal the same. I don't think we'll see the same operating income or profit margins that we saw back in say the 2000s or early 2010s. And one of the things uh, in the last couple of months has been in the news are these streamers actually removing content from their mm -hmm. library. Uh, and it's kind of caught a lot of people, you know, outside of the kind of core industry off guard. What does the decision-making for that look like? Yeah. So this is one of those ones where, man, I wish I could be inside some of the streamers to hear some of those conversations in real life. Um, because when I started in streaming, the idea that it's like, we'll make a show and then pull it later was like inconceivable. But having looked into it, I think there's a couple different pieces. First, um, the big one for a lot of the traditional studios is they're still looking for, they're trying to get their profit margins under control and the debt financing is just really not going to be an option going forward. So if a show really, really, really underperforms and you can essentially write off that value and take the tax losses, you can protect some of that revenue you have to send to the government. I think that's one of the biggest things is getting those write-offs off the book so you can take the content and monetize it elsewhere. Related to that, I do think in the initial exuberance of the streaming wars, especially from the new entrants to catch up to Netflix, and honestly, with the big tech firms uh, with Netflix, is a lot of the deals just at their core probably weren't good deals in the first place. Um, again, if I'm right that the future TV ecosystem is smaller than the current TV ecosystem, then that means by definition, the budgets have to come down or the amount of shows haven't made that. So in some cases, this is about deals that probably didn't make a lot of sense or weren't structured well enough that it gave the streamers flexibility for how to sell them in secondary markets. And then the last piece, even though it is very small, um, the streamers do pay residuals on a lot of content um, or on streaming content. I know there's definitely been news stories that say the stream, that residuals are dead. This is not true for streaming. But the way it works for streaming, which again, like a lot of people don't know, is that it's one flat rate. So, um, and when you think about this, you can see why it would motivate some of these decisions. So Wednesday paid the same amount to its writers and actors and residuals that um, the rise of the pink ladies did that just got removed from Paramount Plus. So when you consider that one of those shows was the biggest show on television or biggest season one on television in 2022, and the other show just it never made any of the charts I tracked. That's why there's also this benefit that if you have to pay these recurring costs to keep content on the air, it might be cheaper to pull them off from a cash flow perspective, ignoring the sort of accounting pieces. Well, I guess you know, two follow-ups to the point about the, the overall market being smaller. You know, one of the troubles I've been kind of working on a story about content spend and uh, churn and you're still looking at a lot of like, you know, Morgan Stanley estimates and things like that, that are probably a little bit scaled back from where they were, but they're still mm -hmm. project growth into the future. Do you see content spend one being the same or smaller? It sounds like my guess would be smaller. And if yes, is it a dramatic reduction in 
the number of shows or the spend per show? I do not have a strong take. I I don't think it's going to keep going up. Now, whether or not content spend as a total stays goes down, I'm little. I I don't have a strong feeling on that though. I think we have seen across the board that it really does seem like a lot of people are trying to right size their content spend. Um, so I would definitely much more bank towards flat, which if you count inflation is the same thing as making it smaller over time. I think both will be an option though, to answer the second part of the question, what happens to the number of content? I think we've already seen budgets come down in certain cases. Um, for example, on the broadcast season, a lot of actors, they're having fewer actors per episode, smaller guarantees, doing smaller writer rooms, things like that. So I think they'll try and figure out ways to keep some of the content costs down. I think some of the reality TV shows will try and be squeezed too for sort of smaller budgets. Um, so I think we'll see a combination of both those things. I also think the other piece that's not really related to removals, but I think we might also see more examples where streamers are selling the same shows to other people because that's essentially a win-win. Another streamer gets a new show and then the other streamer gets cash flow. So it's sort of more circular like that. So it's make providing different streamers new content, but not actually having to go out and pay full freight of a brand new production. And with that kind of last uh, business model question, are you a bull or bear on ad supported streaming? I am a bull on it, uh, especially with the free ad-supported streaming TV. Um, I like I call myself the entertainment strategy guy, so whenever possible, I try and come back to like the core strategy principles. And for me, like my favorite chart is just a value creation model and ask how does this create value for the customers. And with the free ad-supported streaming in particular, I think it really f solves a customer need that the on-demand part of streaming really hasn't quite figured out, which is the idea that it's like, I don't want to pick something heavy to watch right now. I just want something on in the background. And so it can be reruns of friends or it can be, you know, or a, a movie midway through. Um, that's, I know there's some residual implications for that, but I've always thought that, for example, Disney Plus misses a huge use case for why TNT and TBS and FX and USA Network have movies on all the time. It's not because you plan to start watching like Avengers from the beginning, but you see, you're like, hey, what scene is Avengers on? Oh, I like this scene. I'm going to like turn it on in the background and I can go finish dishes or something like that. So I'm a big believer in that. I also think um, with the ad supported streaming, in some cases, it's just going to lower costs. So it's going to allow more customers to have different options for what to watch at the same price. The one caveat I have for the streamers doing it is the data I've seen is that the moment you put advertising on something, the customer value for that, again, back to the value creation model, really, really drops. And their willingness to pay goes way, way down when something is supported with ads and when it's uh, you know without ads entirely. Um, I just had a family member complaining to me about Netflix who doesn't even have an ad supported. He's like, they're running trailers on things. I can't believe it. And it's like, that's like the smallest thing you can do and he's like, what happened? I'll admit, I, I have that with, uh, I, I know HBO Max, and I don't think I've seen it before, but HBO Max will run a trailer. And I'm like, what are you doing? Just go to the show. But old HBO used to do it all the time. But I think that is there. 
the, but overall, I would still say I'm bullish with the idea that uh, the monetization forecasts are probably what I'd be the most skeptical. I'm sure there's people who be like, oh, you know, take the line and draw it up to the moon. And I always tend to be skeptical of that. That's sort of, you know, I'm skeptical of every business model by nature. Yeah, our, our thesis is that they, you know, we look at the revenue per hour, with that being the, the kind of most or all of, of their revenue from advertising, that they obviously have got to create um, more value in the ad unit unless they're going right. to just recreate the kind of linear ad load. Um, and you know, in order to do that, they got to kind of, you know, add, you know, measurement, and, you know, make it more impactful for the buyer, but also bring in more more buyers you know there's only 250 right. you know brands by the the majority of national tv advertising and there are you know probably a million video advertisers in the u.s and um you know really growing the demand side of the equation that's a, a kind of a white space that we see in the market uh today but you know it do you think kind of on a side note there fox smart move by them only having a fast and not having the other pieces or is that are they going to fall behind because of that I think it's a smart move for now because I think they're just really focused on the cash flow question. And I think, um, you know, one of my rules is not to bet against Rupert Murdoch because I think he actually has just done the thing where he buys, like everyone says, like buy low and sell high. And I think he is one of the people who has lived that as one of uh, a person told me once is that Rupert has a price for everything. And then, he knows what he would sell everything at. And he knows what he would buy everything at. And I think he judged that streaming was going up, sold at the right time, could come in and buy low while he's like building up this cash pile. So I think it's smart. That said, I think you identified the big key piece um, because, you know, to go back to the traditional TV, right? While those 250 advertisers did buy the bulk of the advertising, right? Almost all local channels always did sell local ads to car dealerships, you know, appliance shops, things like that. So there are definitely a lot of opportunities for that. I'd say I'm actually working on an article right now on AI because, I mean, that subject's huge and how generative AI could impact everything. One of the pieces that I think would be interesting, I think, for the local people is can you make an ad that looks almost as good as nationally produced ads, but it's for local restaurants? And I think uh, that could help solve one of those demand. You're talking about the demand issue, but that could also help the supply and that if the ad takes a company one day to make, it's way easier than having to go do a whole film shoot and pay someone something like that. But um, I think the demand piece has to get solved, but I am still optimistic for it, uh, sort of the way you are. Yeah, they just got to basically look at the ad unit now as not a spot running once to everybody, but it's, you know, 35,000 ad impressions. And, you know, again, Facebook has just crushed this problem of figuring out how to get that ad impression in front of the person that finds it the most valuable. Right. And that could be location. That could be a direct consumer brand that's, you know, doesn't care where their customers come from. It could be still the, the national groups, but there's a demand part of this that, and when I talk to people that are come from the national ad side, they don't see, they don't think that way at all. Right. Cause they've right. been so successful at selling the one spot, the scarcity, <clears throat> but now, you know, you have an impressions you could, you can sell this to anybody, right? Like it doesn't matter. And you, you really could only, you know, you could figure it out. Like you could just take 10% of your inventory, focus on that, let 90% go to, the, you know, the 250. Right. But I do think, and so, so I'm bullish on people that have not like a Roku or, or a fast service that have not, aren't 
at the upfronts, like, you know, dominating that market today. Right. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, the one other hurdle, I think the connected TV market and basically anything digital, uh, cause I mentioned AI, I think, uh, fake views is the other big issue that I think has to get really handled that that's why when it comes to streaming gratings, I do tend to prefer any platform that has uh, panels because I think it's a little more reliable than just tracking straight usage because, you know, there are already stories about, you know, server farms out there, like just trying to generate click through on ads. So I think that is a big hurdle, but I think you have absolutely identified one of the opportunities. And again, that's what makes me why I would say I'm bullish on ad supported TV is because I think a lot of the traditional is going to transition over. And to your point, you can do better targeting, better optimization for some of those ads for smaller people who would never have considered it before. All right, last question. What is one insight that you have that we're not talking about that we should? One insight that we're not talking about that we probably should. Um, I'll give you... Uh huh. Okay. I probably should have had this prepared earlier. Maybe cut some of this rambling. Um, okay. I'll research. So the, one of the biggest pieces that, uh, continues to amaze me is that, you know, I write a lot about strategy. And so when we tend to think of strategy, I think most people tend to really look externally on strategy. So it's, um, you know, where's our product position against all the, what the customers want and what our competitors are doing. And very much fewer people look internally uh, at things. And I actually think one of the big revolutions is going to be in how we work. I'm a pretty big believer in the books by Cal Newport, uh, Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and so on. A word, world without email would be the most applicable, applicable to big organizations. And I think we're going to see a big trend in the next 10 to 15 years where companies move away from managing most things in their inboxes. And I think most people listening are probably in their inbox right now to project-based workflows, um, doing things say slower, but at higher quality, managing less projects and things like that. So that's whenever anyone asks for me for a recommend book recommendation, it's always deep work. But when it comes to an insight, it's, I think the way we're working is very much like when, um, factories were first electrified. This is an analogy Cal Newport makes. And it required rethinking how an entire factory floor was conceived, but that process took decades to actually realize that, you know, you had smaller motors, so you didn't have to have everything based around like a river turning a steam wheel. So that'll, I think, be one of the big changes in the next 10 years. And I don't think enough people are talking about it. All right, ESG, I've loved this conversation. Where can our audience find you? So I'm at entertainment.substack.com. That's my newsletter where you can get a weekly uh, streaming gratings report, which is uh, uses multiple data sources uh, to provide a comprehensive look of what's working and what's not working in the streaming wars. I also publish regular strategy columns over there um, as well. I publish uh, every other week for the ankler.com, a strategy column as well. And I'm on all the, you know, social, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. So if you want to connect on LinkedIn, go ahead. I will post all the show notes, but I'm uh, grateful for your time. And this has been, been a blast. Yeah. I uh, enjoyed talking to you um, and I appreciate the invite on the podcast. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Wars. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find out more about Cross Screen Media at crossscreenmedia.com. Please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, State of the Screens. You can find us on social media at Cross Screen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.